Quick note about today's episode. I have actually covered this story you're about to hear before, uh, the murder of Kitty King. Uh, Back in 2015, on Most Notorious with Jack L. High, whose name you might recognize, one of Minnesota's great authors and historians, and a guest on Minnesota's Most Notorious. Most recently, I did an interview with him about his book, The Lost Brothers, in October of 2019. He has a great podcast about that, by the way. Check it out. So I was pretty gung-ho about doing a Harry Hayward episode, um, one of my favorite murder cases of all time, in 2015, despite the fact that there had been no book written about the case. Uh, one of the only times I've ever done an episode without a book. But I knew Jack had written an article about the case some years prior to 2015. So I called him, and he graciously agreed to do the interview. But I was asking a lot of him. And while we were able to give the basics of the story, a lot more needed to be told. And I eventually retired the episode, although it's, it's still on Patreon. But when the opportunity arose for me to chat with today's guest, who has written a comprehensive book on the case, I, of course, took that opportunity. So, back again with Minnesota's greatest Gilded Age villain, Harry Hayward. Welcome all to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Thank you for continuing to stay subscribed to the show. Episodes will continue to come in 2022. Uh, P.S. I am still working on a 10-part series about an alleged St. Paul serial killer in the 1920s. I'm conducting interviews to integrate into that series. Uh, Just did one recently with Paul McAbee. So stay tuned. Uh, What I do with that series, whether it's going to be here at Minnesota's Most Notorious or whether I make it a standalone podcast, uh, that is yet to be determined. But rest assured, I will continue to give you updates on its progress here at Minnesota's Most Notorious. So on to the show. It is so great to have as my guest today, Sean Francis Peters. He is a legal historian who teaches in the Integrated Liberal Studies Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he is the author of six books, including The Catonsville Nine, A Story of Faith and Resistance in the Vietnam Era. And he is here to talk about one of the most sensational murder cases in Minneapolis history. And his book, by the way, is called The Infamous Harry Hayward, A True Account of Murder and mesmerism in Gilded Age, Minneapolis. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I've uh, listened to episodes of this podcast before, and the stories are always like 
very rich and fascinating and kind of down and dirty. And that's, uh, I hope, I hope that this book also kind of fits in with, uh, the kinds of other things you've been talking about. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's, it's great that you're here. I'm excited to talk about this. So yeah. Uh, before we get into this story, where did you first hear the name Harry Hayward and what motivated you to write a book about him? Well, it's a, it, the story of the story is it's is interesting in its own right. Yeah, I had done um, you, you know you mentioned I was I'm a legal historian. I had done four books on law and religion, and I I kind of burned out on law and religion. I felt like geez, I think I've written just about everything I can write about law and religion. And I thought about what are the kind of books that I really like. You know, if I go into a bookstore uh, and wander around, you know, what, what aisle am I going to be in? And I kind of I didn't totally trust myself in terms of to how to figure that out. It seems like you should know what you like to write about, but after a while, maybe you don't. And um, I created a word cloud. I went and I looked at um, several hundred books that I had read that were just kind of on my bookshelves. And I did keywords for every book and I created you know a word cloud where it's a, the text of the document and the words that are used more often are larger. So I created a word cloud. It had like 6,000 items in it. And the, the large words were murder, true crime, gilded age, um, upper Midwest, things like that. And as I looked at the work cloud, I was like, yes, actually, this, that's something that I'm into. So I had a little bit of a Venn diagram. I knew I wanted to write about this period, um, gilded age, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, I knew I wanted it to be... Um, True crime, not necessarily a murder, but it all, you know, true crime often is murder. And I knew I wanted to do something just in the upper, upper Midwest because of the logistics. I'm in Madison. Um, I didn't necessarily want to write a book that was set in, you know, Florida or Maine or someplace. I, I wanted to be able to go there and get a feel for it and do research. And in that little Venn diagram, the, the middle of it was this case just through, you know, poking around and looking online and, you know, reading stuff about the time I came across this case. And the, one of the things I try to think of when I'm doing a book is I don't want to write like the eighth book about something. I want to write the one and only book about, it. I just can't make myself kind of hash over stuff that other people have done. And when I came across this case, I was a little sad because I thought, oh, this would be perfect, but I'm sure someone has written a book about this before and I'm someone has beaten me to the punch. But for whatever reason, no one had. So it, it really ticked off every box that I had as an author. And just there's a kind of visceral thing, I think, when you're in a you're reading a good book or you're listening to a podcast, something just it just kind of has to grab you in some way. And um, this was a story, hey, and Harry Hayward was the kind of person who really grabbed me that way. So it was a story that I enjoyed researching and just kind of getting into and thinking about and exploring. And, and that's usually a good time when you're writing, when you feel that way about it. Usually that means, you know, readers will feel that way too. I, for me, if I don't feel enthusiastic about it, if I can't make myself get into it, then I probably, you know, can't expect readers to either. So that was the, that's how I got into it was I just, I, I did it. And I've never really actually picked a topic in quite such a deliberate manner, but it actually 
um, it actually worked. The, the magic of the word cloud uh, really got me going in the right direction. And then I, I found uh, Harry that way. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, a mental note, uh, word clouds. Uh, I, I need to use them for my future projects. So, so Harry Hayward is one of the most colorful characters I've ever encountered in true crime. Uh, very much larger than life. Would you talk about him, his background, and his appearance? Sure. He was a great-looking uh, guy uh, in his uh, late 20s. And just um, today we would call him a, a playboy. Um, he was somebody who um, didn't actually work, uh, didn't wasn't a self-made man at all as a his father was uh, a landlord and an attorney and, and Harry just kind of sponged off of his father. He gambled, he um, caroused, he played cards all over the place, played Pharaoh was his game and was just really a sociopath. I mean, I think that that's probably the only way to describe him. Um, and I, I'm always, um, skeptical when I'm reading books and someone, you, you know, you use the term larger than life. And when I, when I come across that in a story, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm a contrarian by nature. And I think, Oh, wait a minute. This person couldn't have been as when you, when you see someone's described as e pure evil, I, you know, I, my, my antenna go up as a, as a critical thinker. Cause I think of course this person probably had some redeeming qualities, you know, round out the character and Harry, there just were no redeeming qualities. Uh, he was a womanizer. He was a counterfeiter. Um, and universally everybody who ever encountered him eventually came to the same conclusion about him. He was tremendously dynamic. Um, and I think that kind of uh, allowed him to be this person that he was, where he was he was able to manipulate people and he was able to get people to do things that they wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise. And I think that that really uh, was kind of the hallmark of, of Harry's life. He didn't build things. He didn't make things. He didn't help people. He was just on the make. Um, another thing about Harry, uh, he purportedly had the powers of mesmerism, um, or, uh, kind of mind control, if you will. He was often portrayed as this kind of Svengali figure and, and Svengali appears as a character. There's this novel called Trilby that came out right before Harry came into prominence. And that was the that was the comparison that was often used in the media uh, was that, Oh, Harry is this, is this Svengali type figure. And, and he really, you know, whether or not I, I, you know, the, my scientific mind, my, my critical thinking bent, you know, leads me to believe that there is no such thing as mind control, but he clearly had this just incredible dynamism that allowed him to just kind of run roughshod over um, whether it was the women in his life, whether it was his uh, his family members. He had a, a poor brother named Adri who was just abused and taken advantage of uh, throughout their lives. Um, whoever it was, whatever context, he was just always 
on the make and just looking out for himself. And I went and I looked, I've, you know, the, the term sociopath hadn't come into parlance really at the time, but I thought, you know, this is, this, he seems like a sociopath. What does that even mean? And there are particular characteristics. There's like a checklist you can go through and, and Harry, he checks off every, every box. And so I, to me, I wanted to resist this idea. I really, I really tried to find whether there was something redeeming about him. Was there, was there this side? Did he, you know, give money to an orphanage or did he take care of his elderly mother? There must have been something. But really and truly, there really wasn't anything at all about him. And I wanted to, when I, um, you know, he was compared to, people talked about him as a devil or pure evil. And I, I was, I wanted to like do more than just slap a label on him and really kind of explain how, he, how people use those labels so freely with him. But as I got to know him, I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. He just was, he was kind of this malevolent force of nature, just kind of running roughshod um, through the Twin Cities in the early 1890s. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned looking up a list of characteristics of a sociopath, because as I was reading your book, I did the same thing. And in fact, I even have it pulled up here. <laughs> uh, he literally checks every box. Um, lack of empathy for others, impulsive behavior, attempts to control others with threats or aggression, using intelligence, charm, or charisma to manipulate others, not learning from mistakes, lying for personal gain, superficial relationships, stealing or committing other crimes, trouble with responsibilities, uh, uh, definitely. <laughs> um, he, he was a sociopath in every sense of the word. Absolutely, yeah. And, and again, and also and was uh, very handsome to boot, and I think that that kind of played into it um, as well and came from a relatively affluent, but, you know, had some privilege, came from an affluent background and yeah, it was just one of those people. Um, and you know, the story of the murder at the center of the book is a story about, you know, someone who, who just had the misfortune of kind of, um, uh, having her life intersect, with his and and people whose lives intersected with Harry's life, um, things often did not turn out so well for them. Right, right. And you you are referring, of course, to Catherine Ging, better known as Kitty Ging. Uh, she became friends with Hayward, and it was kind of a an unlikely friendship, uh, on paper at least. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it didn't seem like the type of relationship with a woman that Hayward typically pursued and he pursued a lot of women. Yeah. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I kind of agree, you know, Kitty King was, uh, she was a dressmaker. Uh, she had a shop in the syndicate block in downtown Minneapolis and was a very talented, entrepreneurial, strong-minded woman. And I think Harry's relationship, other relationships, I don't know that that was a hallmark of the kind of person that he typically uh, pursued. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I think that, that Kitty, 
I, I think that they both saw uh, maybe just an opportunity in being in a relationship with one another. And there was a, a romantic relationship and there was also a business relationship. And I, it's possible that um, Harry um, lent Kitty some money. And I think that that's where things uh, began to unravel for her. Um, I will say in Kitty, I, I gave a talk at the, uh, the Hennepin Historical Society and they actually have a dress of Kitty's in their collection, uh, which was really f uh, fantastic uh, to see. It's quite obviously over you know, 100 and some years old, quite beautiful. So she was at a time when women were, you know, gender roles were changing and the role in the economy was changing and they were um, trying to find ways to sort of get out of the domestic sphere and do things on their own. She was kind of at the forefront of that. And there weren't a lot of trades or professions where women could could do things like that. And dressmaking was, was one of them. And she just picked the wrong person to get involved in. There's only, that's really the only way to, to think about it. It was just a unfortunate um, coincidence, really. Right. So the center of operations for Harry Hayward, it was a place called the Ozark Flats. Uh, Kitty Gang rented rooms there. And it's a pretty amazing building. And it's still there. It, it stands pretty lonely by itself on Hennepin Avenue now. But still really cool that it still exists. A, a brick and mortar reminder of, of this historical case. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was really happy to, to discover, you know, I went up there and walked around and, and, and it's there and it's, it's a beautiful edifice. It's still quite amazing. And that really was the, if you just think about the things that happened in this case, that was very much kind of the epicenter of it. Um, uh, Harry's father owned the building. Kitty had rented rooms there. Klaus Blixt is the maintenance man in Ozark Flats. He plays a rather large role in this case. So that's the that's the place. I did a, a story with the folks at uh, Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine, and we we wandered around Minneapolis, um, going to various, um, trying to see sort of what what had happened to this very in their stables and the the old county jail and stuff. But if you stand, they did a great, um, there's a great picture of a kind of then and now, and like one is in color and one is in black and white, but exterior wise, those buildings are, are quite similar. So it's, it's a beautiful landmark building and I'm glad that it hasn't been, uh, you know, knocked down and turned into a parking lot. Right. I, I always wanted to go into the boiler room. Uh, that's where much of the action took place in the story where he hashed out his plans with Claude Blixt. Were you ever able to get in there? I got in there, but not as much as I wanted to get in there. So it's, there are uh, condos now. And I tried to kind of, uh, you know, in the way one does when you want to get into a building and you don't have keys, uh, I waited for somebody to come in and acted like I was coming in also. And it just... I felt like I was kind of breaking and entering and I, I didn't, uh, I walked around a bit, but um, I didn't go, but you're right. The basement would have been the place. And that's where uh, Klaus Blixt 
kind of lived and worked. And that's where um, he and Harry, I wouldn't say that they hatched a plot because I think it was Harry's plot. And uh, Klaus Blixt was just kind of the dupe um, that Harry kind of coerced into going along with um there was i haven't i haven't been there in a bit there used to be a coffee shop on the there was an espresso royale there uh on the ground floor and i had a coffee in there and i just thought that that was the the funniest sort of surreal thing that i was here i was doing this like kind of affluent first world thing, you know, having my coffee in the coffee shop in this building that where all of the stuff had happened before. And that's great as an historian, you know, when you can, I don't want to get too misty about all of this stuff, but sometimes you write about things that you're just imagining places, right? Um, if you're, if you're writing about the past, you know, you're imagining, you're sort of conversing with people who are, have departed um, so it's it's really good to have a place to be able to go to a place and say, okay, here is the place. You know, it is a real tangible spot um, still. So for me, that was um, that was really cool. I really enjoyed doing that. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I sat in there more than once myself, <laughs> trying to imagine what it looked like in 1894. Um, so would you share with us? What do you know about the relationship between Harry Hayward and Kitty King? What was really going on between them? I know it's hard to know the true nature of their relationship, but they were business associates at, at a bare minimum. What well, was more like a, a faux business relationship? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's 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 difficult to kind of untangle sort of what was what was real and what wasn't real. I mean, I, there was a romantic piece to it and there were rumors as happens with any kind of, you know, legendary crime. There were rumors about, I think one of the first, after Kitty was murdered, one of the first rumors that sort of sprung up was that she, um, that Harry had impregnated her and that, uh, he had killed her because he, you know, it was, uh, you know, he didn't want to have to deal with this child. And and that wasn't true. What was true was that Harry connived in a way to, uh, he, he foolishly went around to have insurance policies taken out on Kitty with himself being named as the beneficiary in return for, it's kind of as a surety for some loans that, um, he had given to Kitty and it, whether, it, whether or not those, <laughs> the loans that he had actually given to her were legal tender or not is sort of a matter of debate because Harry was also involved in, it was called green goods. It was this counterfeiting scam um, that it's a little hard to untangle in a neat way, but um, it was, uh, Harry wanted to collect some insurance money, I think is the most straightforward way to put it. And he was the beneficiary as a result of the, these sort of loan arrangement that, uh, he had manipulated Kitty into, um, going with. And he, I mean, for, it's interesting with Harry because in some ways he was, he was very cunning. He was very smart. He was very manipulative, 
all of these things. But he also did some like really incredibly stupid things that you would never do. For those of us who watch, you know, crew, tr- crew true crime docuseries and listen to these podcasts. We, you know, we think we know the ways to commit the perfect murder. Um, he did some things that a, a perfect murderer never would have done. And one of them was he, he went around and talked to insurance agents and said, well, um, how can one collect, like what, what sorts of deaths are except, you know, accidental death is homicide. Uh, can one collect as a beneficiary if a homicide has been committed and so forth. Uh, which, of course, after Kitty's death, all of these insurance agents came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I talked to this guy. Before the murder, he was talking about um, various ways that one could um, collect. The other thing that Harry did that was just, I mean, the the most foolhardy thing, I think it was maybe just a function of his ego, was that you know, he went to the police right away after Kitty's body was found. Um near Lake Calhoun in December of 1894, you know, he, he went to the police and sort of started talking to them and that raised some red flags. And the police said, well, who is this guy? You know, why is he coming and talking to us? And he sort of made it easier. It wasn't the most brilliant plot as a murder plot. It was not at the most difficult to unravel um, for the police. But the fact, I think the sheer sort of brazenness of it, I think that his ego is such that he thought, I can talk my way. I've been talking my way out of things my entire life. I've been fooling people my entire life. I've been manipulating people. I think he thought he would be able to get away with it. He didn't necessarily need to be um uh, didn't necessarily need to have pl- plotted everything perfectly not yeah not only had he talked to various insurance agents but you write that he actually asked a doctor what the best way to kill someone was yeah, that, too. <laughs> that too yeah that was another one like you don't um i don't know i'm not uh i don't purport to be a, an expert on how to plot murders but i'm not sure that i would have of course today you would what would you do? You would look it up, uh, you would Google it, and then erase your search history. Of course, there was nothing like that then. Um, but another, yeah, another, and the doctor came along and said, hey, he, lo and behold, and I, the doctor had told him, um, you know, shooting someone, uh, I think just below the temple was the uh, most effective way. Um, so, yes, those were, he did not do himself any favors. Right. And in another instance, And I don't remember if it was the owner of a a livery, but he asked that person if he had a team of horses that, when startled, could be steered off of a cliff. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) He was, he was, and I think I, I, it, and again, this is why I find this more interesting. Like the, the imperfection, let's say, of his evilness, where, on the one hand, he was, he just was this evil guy. Let's just face it. But was, um, I don't know. It just wasn't as, um, brilliant as he, as he thought he was. And to me, that's, that makes it more interesting rather than this sort of very flat sort of portrayal where you say, Oh, he, 
he was brilliant and no one ever saw through him. And, he, you know, I don't think that the human condition is like that. I think that people, whether they're plotting murders or living their lives, people are kind of uneven in the way they do things. And, and Harry was, um, he was nothing if not imperfect in that way. Right. It's, it's so interesting because on one hand, he, he was not short on elaborate plans. He, he had multiple plans to kill Kitty, uh, well thought out with alibis. I mean, he was very careful about all of that. But his major downfall was that he was not a good judge of character. He was so used to preying on those who were mentally susceptible to his influence that he never took into account that those same people might be susceptible to the influence of <laughs> police and interrogators too. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, the murder itself, if we can just get into that. So, so Harry doesn't, um, he didn't pull the trigger. He manipulated, uh, Klaus Blix, who's this, the maintenance guy in the Ozark flats to do it. And Harry made a point of being visible at a perf- public performance with another woman and, and, intentionally arrived late so that everyone in the theater could see him arrive late. So he, he didn't do the deed and he had an alibi uh, for at, for the time at which the, the, the crime was committed. And, and, and at his trial, that was, um, that was really what, what it boiled down to was that, you know, Blixt had done it, but he had been sort of, uh, Harry's instrument, but some of it was clever. I mean, going to the, going out with this other woman and, and making sure everybody knew um, what time it was when he would, you know, ask the people, uh, you know, oh, my watch is broken. What time do you have? So that they would later uh, remember where he was. Um, that was, you know, those were, those were things that, but again, are, 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 speaks to his, cunning and willingness to manipulate and just, you know, it wasn't a, um, it was the kind of the opposite of a, you know, crime of passion, right? We talk about just a spur of the moment thing. You just get angry and something bad happens and you immediately uh, regret, you know, in the moment it just sort of happened. And the next thing you knew, you know, there was a, you had a gun in your hand and there was a body on the floor in front of you. This is the opposite of that. He had really, really, really thought about it, really, really planned somewhat imperfectly figured out that Klaus Blixt was a vulnerable person who was easily manipulated, was kind of a good um, dupe to do this. And it's really amazing that one of the things I think about is Blixt actually doing this is the person who actually shoots, you know, Kitty Ging in the head while they're riding in this carriage by Lake Calhoun basically because Harry has um, <laughs> Harry has induced Blix to have earlier have committed some other crimes. They've committed arson uh, and insurance fraud. And Harry says, well, this is all going to come out. If you don't, um, if you don't kill Kitty for me, you will be exposed for these other things. And Blix, he does it. Um, and we can all put ourselves in that in that position and say, I never would have done this. I would have just gone to the police and I would have explained everything. And Blix didn't do that. You know, Harry was the son of 
Blix's boss, Harry's father, owned the building where Blix worked. Blix was an immigrant from Sweden, and he did it. And that, you know, that moment to me, I, I, I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book because these were uh, Blixed and Kitty didn't uh, they? They knew each other slightly from you know being in the building together, but um, they found themselves together and. Uh, you know, her death was the result of it. And Hayward, according to Blixt, threatened Blixt's wife's life, right? Right. Exactly, yeah. And he I, he thought, I think probably mistakenly, right, that, well, I have to, I've got to choose either, you know, my wife gets killed or uh, I kill Kitty Ging. And he... Uh, chose to, and he, he admitted, I mean, Blix broke down, not immediately, but relatively quickly. So it wasn't, um, it was a spectacular case right from the beginning. It wasn't so much a whodunit. Like there wasn't a months long mystery as to, oh my, you know, this poor woman was found, you know, on the path near Lake Calhoun, whatever happened. They figured it out pretty fast that Blixt had done it and Blixt admitted that he did it, but it was more of a how done it, like why done it, you know, how did this happen? And Blixt had had really no, um, he wasn't a saint, but he had never done anything like this before. Um, and that's like, that's what made the case so appealing for so many people. It became, um, not only a, uh, local and regional story, but a national story as well. It was like unpacking all of the hairy stuff. You know, how could one person have manipulated another person to have committed a crime this way? And many people really took it as an article of faith that it must have been mesmerism. It must have been mind control. Um, that, that was the explanation. And at the time, I think people believed that mesmerism, there are a lot of great, um, kind of 19th century things in this book. There's mesmerism, there's, uh, phrenology, the reading of, um, skulls, uh, to, does the size of your brow indicate, you know, criminal behavior, um, and spiritualism also there's, uh, towards the latter stages of the book, uh, communicating with the dead, stuff like that happening too, which again, as an author for me, I, that I love that kind of stuff. It just, just, um, speaks volumes about where the, the nation was in the latter part of the 19th century and, um, things that today we might not, although I don't know, our, um, <laughs> uh, maybe phrenology will make a good, given our current, uh, approach to science as a country is phrenology might make a comeback. Who knows the, the rate we're going, but we kind of look back on those things and say, Oh my God, how, how could people have believed in all of this? But they did. And it adds layers to the story. And I just, I like kind of quirky, weird stuff. That's the stuff that really my eyes kind of light up when I, uh, when I see a, a you know, a, just a, a discussion of something like that in a story. I'm like, okay, I definitely have to write about this because it's so cool and unusual. Right. Oh, for sure. So how did Harry get 
Kitty into a carriage with Claude Blixt. He led her to believe that uh, Harry would join them later on this carriage ride. And, and he had, uh, had laid some foundation for this. They had taken some carriage rides before. And on this particular night, uh, he more or less said, Hey, I'm going to, I got some other stuff to do, but you know, go out. Blix will Blix kind of showed up and said, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get the ball rolling here, kitty. And, and Harry will kind of, you know, meet up with us later, which, you know, it ha- happens, right. We think about our social lives today and, you know, someone said, Oh, we're going to, my friend isn't ready to go out to go to the bar to meet us, but I'm, we'll we'll walk over to the bar together and we'll meet up with someone that's sort of, uh, what happened? And again, that's another one where I think about that moment. And I think, why did she do this? Like, why did she, how could she have not known that something was really, really wrong about that evening and about that carriage ride, you know? Um, and she was a shrewd person and was not, a naive person at all, by all accounts, was a very, very able and clear thinking person. But um, she, for whatever reason, the circumstances are so strange. It, it, it could have happened. So many other, I guess life is like this, right? So many things could have happened. Otherwise, Blix could have lost his nerve. Kitty could have said, wait a minute, this is kind of a messed up situation. Why am I going? Why am I in a carriage with like the maintenance man in my building waiting for my sort of semi-boyfriend to show up? Like there, it could have happened so much differently. And maybe on another night it would have, but um, unfortunately for her, it didn't. And they, they were in that carriage together and he worked up the nerve and, um, Pulled the trigger. We will return after some brief messages. And we are back. She was suspicious, right? When, when he pulled out a gun and set it on the seat next to her. And, and, and by the way, uh, Lake Calhoun, uh, the route they traveled, it looks so different. And it's almost impossible to imagine the difference between then and now. Oh, absolutely. That's another, that's a location where, you know, I've been out there a few times and I, uh, I remember driving in my, and I knew it wasn't, you know, it was going to be built up and, you know, there, there was going to, uh, you know, it, it just, um, in the way that, uh, the Ozark flats looks the same, um, this area where all of this happened looks vastly different. And this is another thing where, you know, Harry had, earlier staged a fake robbery on a carriage ride in a similar place. So when Blixt had the gun, I think we don't know what was going on in Kitty's head, but it was sort of this, Oh, well, you know, I have a gun, but it's because, you know, you all got robbed out here earlier. So he, Harry had, had, again, had thought it, through it wasn't just a random kind of spur of the moment thing where she had never been on a carriage ride within didn't know Blake's and never been on a carriage ride and just it he had 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 plotted and had thought a couple of steps 
ahead to get her alone with Blix in that spot so that he could commit the crime while Harry was um, far, far away and was being seen by, you know, dozens and dozens of people. Like no one could have thought that, that Harry was directly uh, involved in that moment. It just wasn't possible. So the real break in the case came when the Hayward family attorney, Levi Stewart, approached police with a really interesting story to tell. Exactly. So the, the attorney shows up and basically, um, uh, so Harry's brother is Adri Hayward and, and Adri has, um, I mean, long as I I can't even imagine being the brother of Harry Hayward and Harry, I mean, approaches his brother and uh, before the murder and tries to uh, involve his brother in this murder plot and uh, his brother reacts in horror and Harry says, well, you know, come on, you don't have the nerve to do something like this. And uh, Adrian had a conversation, then had a conversation with Levi Stewart, who was the family attorney and said, Oh my God, I think my brother, you know, is, <laughs> is, is up to no good. Um, and then after the murder, Levi Stewart comes for Adrian doesn't come forward immediately, but the, the attorney comes forward to the police and sort of says, Hey, look, I, I had heard, I, I didn't think that there was anything to this story, when I heard it before the murder, because Harry is Harry and, you know, he tells these tall tales, but it turns out that, you know, he had, the, the family attorney had basically heard about, had gotten wind of this, uh, before it happened and just didn't do anything. But then after the crime came forward, talked to the police and said, Hey, uh, I'm pretty sure that Harry had something to do with it. Uh, Minneapolis mayor Eustace really took an active role in this case, right? Um, including personally interrogating Adri. Yeah. Mary Eustace really is, a. uh, I don't purport to be a, a political historian of the twin cities, but, uh, I, I learned a bit about, you know, municipal governance and Mary Eustace really as a, as a reformer, you know, had sort of, uh, come in and in this case, led, I don't want to say led, but took a leading role and really kind of got the ball moving in terms of um, interrogating people and being intimately involved in how the app, uh, how the investigation moved forward. And I think, understandably, given the media hype that had uh, surrounded the case, it wasn't the kind of case that you just, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, because of the, in part because of the the victim in the case. And this is a, uh, very much a, um, an issue of class in some ways where people got murdered in Minneapolis, you know, all the time and the mayor didn't necessarily care, but, um, this was, a uh, affluent white woman, uh, who was well-known and well-respected in the community. And it couldn't, it just couldn't be another case that the police just sort of, you know, uh, police work being what it was in 1894, like, or, and, and, and into 1895. Police work, sometimes it was good, sometimes it was not so good. Um, I think that he rightly understood this, is, um, this isn't just another 
random murder, given um, given the prominence that had, it had gotten, um, not only in the cities, but all over the place. So it was going to reflect poorly on him if it wasn't done right. And I think the prosecution overall, it wasn't perfect, but the case was generally handled competently. Yeah, but it's funny to think about now if a mayor of whatever city got tried to get involved in a murder investigation and prosecution, we would, we would just, you know, everybody would say, wait a minute, this isn't the mayor's business. But uh, the lines of authority were a little murkier back then than they are today. So he could, um, he could be at the forefront of what was happening. Right, right. So it didn't take much to break Adri down, but they didn't have much luck getting a confession out of Harry. Uh, yeah, well, not before his trial. Eventually, there is a um, there is a confession much, much later, and there's you know questions about the authenticity of this confession and the accuracy of it. But Harry was just never. I mean, it's it's hard to believe any sociopath of that caliber, or in Harry in particular, you know, have somehow having a crisis of conscience, and you know. Um, throwing himself on the mercy of the court or um, perhaps uh, pleading insanity. This was a time after um, President Garfield's murder and uh, Charles Jouteau, who was the murderer of Garfield and this insanity plea and all this other stuff. It was kind of a time when that was more possible. You could, you know, use mental incapacity as a, possible defense, but there was no way Harry was ever going to admit to be having mental incapacity because he thought he was shrewd and uh, cunning enough. Um, and during the trial, because these, his reputation as a mesmerist was uh, formidable, people believed that he was going to mesmerize the jury. He was going to put the jury into a trance and that's, uh, that's how he was going to get off in this case. And there was just too much evidence there were, and too many different kinds of uh, evidence for that. So uh, he, he would have needed something kind of supernatural to have gotten acquitted. Yeah. Uh, speaking of mental capacity, you, you write that the defense's strategy was to emphasize that mental illness ran in the Hayward family but not to implicate Harry, uh, but instead to point the finger at his brother, Adri. And in turn, that would throw doubt onto Adri's confession. Exactly. And that was, I mean, again, this, this just speaks to the kind of person that Harry was. His poor brother, Adri, who, you know, really never did anything wrong. Uh, to the very last, you know, Harry was trying to, um, pin it on his brother. And as you said, there was this belabored effort by Harry's attorneys. They went and they looked at the family tree and found some folks who had been institutionalized and tried to use that to prove that, that Adrian, who had been very much the same reasonable good son, uh, that it, it all, it all showed that Adrian must have, uh, Adri must be the monster and not Harry, which is the irony there being, of course, that that very effort in itself 
just kind of showed the the sort of person that Harry was. And the fact that Harry had his parents wrapped around his finger. Some of these courtroom scenes and exchanges uh, were just pathetic, where Mrs. Hayward refused to believe a word that Adri said, <laughs> but then looked at Harry as a, as a saint, right? Absolutely, yeah, and it's 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 sad. Those are, you're right. Those are some of the saddest things in the whole book, um, where they just believe in Harry. He is their kind of golden child, and to the detriment of Adri. And Adri is um, they they're just never gonna love and believe in Adri as much as they did. Harry, they they are the only two people, though. By the you know, by the time there's a trial and things just trickle out, as happens in any high-profile murder, it it's it takes a while for there to be a trial, and in that time, the stories come out about you know Harry's various misdeeds, and there's this kind of media firestorm and public opinion firestorm regarding Harry and his character, but his parents. Uh, were were with him until the bitter end, yeah. One of the interesting things that came out in all of this was that was something that Adri and Claude Blixt told police is that when Harry approached them individually, initially, to try to get them to become his accomplices in Kitty's murder, part of his pitch was to inform them that that he himself was not new to murder. He, he told them he had murdered people already. Yeah, he did. He um, had had referenced um, there was a murder in uh, outside of Pasadena, California. He claimed to have committed. Um, there was a murder in New Jersey and another one in, in New York City. He basically told them. And later uh, he... There's kind of a public uh, published confession that Harry puts out um, kind of at the 11th hour of his life. And he he admits that this is not and these were murders that he that by his own hand. Right. The the gang murder was not a murder by his own hand. These other murders had been things that uh, that he himself had done. And um, boy, I looked into those other murders and. Uh, Jack L. High, who uh, many of your your listeners also know, also had written had written something about this case before, uh, and we both looked into it. And we couldn't I couldn't find a lot of proof one way or another. Just because Harry said he did these things doesn't mean that he actually did them. But the the descriptions and the it, they have a ring of truth to them. There's just a level of specificity and and this one murder that had happened in California also involved a young woman and involved Harry getting some money. And it, it was, it, it was told in the story was told in such a way. It didn't actually reflect very well on Harry. The, the story of the disposal of the woman's body was this kind of comedy of errors and so forth. Um, so it, Part of me was skeptical of the story from Harry because you, you know, he's enough of a sociopath that he could have lied about having committed these other murders to impress people. But 
he's such a sociopath that I don't know that he would have made up stories that didn't reflect well on him. They're these kind of scrubby murder, you know, they just, they just aren't sort of impressive murders, but they are murders that he, he admitted to. And um, I think people talk about Harry as being the, the, I, I don't say this in the book because I don't think that this is true, but people often talk about him as being in this kind of early serial, the first serial American serial killer, which I don't think is true. I, there's no way that there were no serial killers before 1895, but that does make you, if you commit a series of kind of unconnected murders over a period of time, uh, that makes you a serial killer. And I think that, uh, Harry fell into that's kind of a judgment call. I don't, I wish I, I wish I had more as a historian and as a legal historian, you know, there's so much documentary evidence relating Harry that the trial transcript is out there and legal briefs and stories and his confession. You have all of this evidence. And then for these other murders, you really just have Harry talking about them. Um, and as a, I was a journalist before I was an historian and, and, you know, when you're looking to verify things, just taking one person's word for it is, um, you do that at your peril and you do that at your peril, especially if it's somebody like Harry, but it, it adds, it's, it has a ring of truth and plausibility to it, I think. So Harry Hayward testified on his own behalf. What was he like on the stand and did he sway the jury at all with his story? Uh, was he sympathetic at all? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I actually start the book with Harry on the stand and then, you know, you know, circle back to the beginning. But to me, any trial, I am a legal historian, you know, trials have a kind of ebb and a flow. Most trials are really boring for long portions of time. Like nothing really happens, but there are particular witnesses, particular moments that are the stuff of high drama. And anytime you have a defendant testifying in his or her own defense, like that's a big deal. They don't have to. It's they're constitutionally protected right not to do that. Um, so the mere fact that Harry took the stand was itself, it was a big deal. Um, it was a big deal. And people were curious, you know, here was this person, there had been so much, I don't know, kind of mythology built up around Harry and his um, purported powers of mind control and how he, you know, he's this handsome guy and, and here was everyone's chance to kind of see him in the flesh and to just kind of hear from him, you know, what had happened. And it was, my sense is that it was maybe not so much about getting to the bottom of it and getting to the truth. Uh, trials purport to be about that, but it was this, um, here was this celebrity that people were going to have a chance to you know, witness in action and Harry on the stand itself, um, and, and there were people who actually thought that he would because he was allegedly a mesmerist that this would be his moment to kind of put everybody into a trance and uh, convince everyone uh, that he was not guilty. And he, you know, he tried. He was very um, Harry-like in his evasions and so forth and trying to pin the blame on others and explaining away all of the many 
pieces of evidence, both direct and circumstantial, that uh, pointed to his guilt. And obviously also to just highlight the fact that uh, Klaus Blix had actually been the one who had shot Kitty. Um, so it was, on the one hand, it was this, I don't know, signal moment. This was the, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's fair. I wonder how many trials, how many trials have claimed to be the trial of the century. I wouldn't say that this was the trial of the century, but certainly in the cities um, at that time, this was a big deal. It was the biggest moment of the trial. And it, he did not say manage to save himself. He did not manage to uh, persuade the jury that uh, he was blameless. I mean, for all of his um, skill at speaking and being a, you know, this dynamic, great looking guy, it was just an uphill battle. There were just too many um, pieces of evidence. And, you know, the fact that Klaus Blixt admitted to his role, did, uh, Klaus Blixt, you know, didn't, didn't really point the finger at anybody else. He admitted that he did it, but implicated Harry along the way. All these other people did as well. So it was, um, it was, uh, I don't want to say that it didn't live up to his billing because I think in a way it did because it gave people a chance to kind of witness Harry in action. But at the same time, he didn't, um, there was just too much kind of, kind of going against him in that moment. I mean, for a guy who had, never been told no, basically, for his entire life. Um, I mean, there were never any checks on him. Getting caught and, and being found guilty had to have been a massive blow to his ego. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the word, uh, the word entitled gets thrown around a lot these days. We call people entitled. But here he was, I mean, he was the definition of entitled. And so this was, I think, for sure, Harry believed he could trick and talk his way out of it up until the very end. Um, that was the um, the degree to which he was a sociopath, the, the extent of his ego. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the guilty verdict kind of eventually, you know, hit him, you know, this kind of thunderous way. Um, and he did have to resolve himself to it eventually. And I don't know that he, or resign himself to it. I don't know that he ever like fully came to terms with it necessarily. I don't think that he ever really begged for forgiveness really. I mean, he did ask after having tried to pin the murder on his brother, he eventually did sort of ask to be forgiven for having done that. But I don't think that there was a moment of, um, I don't know, moment of clarity or anything where he realized, Oh my God, I'm this incredible monster. What have I done? Um, that was just not, it just wasn't in Harry's DNA. I don't think it's in the DNA of any kind of sociopath like this, but in particularly in Harry's case, um, he did, uh, and he reveled in being the center of attention. I mean, in a weird way, you know, I think he, um, he thought to some extent it was kind of great to be a celebrity. It was, it was maybe the wrong kind of celebrity if it's going to end with uh, being on the scaffold. But, you know, he relished being the center of attention and being this kind of notorious villain. So he, he milked that for all it was worth all the way until the very end. He fought like hell to, to escape responsibility but, but when he finally realized he couldn't and that he was going to die, um, he turned around and, and embraced it instead, almost. 
and decided that if he was going to be a villain, he'd be the very best and evilest villain that there ever was. Exactly. And that's, you know, he, he winds up um, giving a sort of extended interview slash confession um, to a guy named Joe Mannix. And I think that that was his kind of final effort to memorialize himself to really get, get the, and it's a, like, as these things are, obviously it's not the full story. There are things that he omits and talks around and so forth. But I think that he believed, okay, this is going to be, this will kind of live forever. This, this document will be sort of my legacy, if you will. Uh, and it was a very perverse legacy, but um, here we are uh, all these years later speaking of him and discussing him. So in some way he, in a twisted way, he was successful in that he was, you know, people will, people have not forgotten who he is or who he was. So despite what he had done, the, the horrific nature of the crime, there were still women in Minneapolis who were obsessed with him, both during the trial and after the verdict. Oh, absolutely. He, uh, he uh, had a kind of uh, paramour. Today, I think it would be like an uh, internet uh, uh, girlfriend. You know, they, they corresponded back and forth. Uh, and then eventually, uh, years later, the papers got a hold of these letters. And I, boy, that's a whole separate podcast, right? What um, the attraction of these accused killers and and why people of both both genders are, are drawn to them i i don't purport to know even the beginnings of why that is but um and he was a a, a, a an attractive dynamic person that did draw people to him but the, and these letters are just like we read them now through the kind of prism of history and they just are really, I don't know, kind of mortifying in some ways to, to realize that he was still doing his hairy stuff. I mean, even after he had been um, put on trial and found guilty. Right. Did he ever make amends with his brother, Adri? He, I mean, in a way, they had some, uh, I don't know, a kind of awkward uh, reconciliation eventually. It's kind of hard to know with Harry because he never quite genuinely did anything. I, I think that he, I think he maybe made the best attempt at a rapprochement that he could <laughs> with his his brother. And, and I said previously that, you know, his uh, poor Adri is just this, I don't know, sad figure throughout. And, and Harry realized that. And in the, in the confession, there is some, like, I, I can't even explain it, but people, I hate to be one of these people who says, Oh, you have to read the book to figure that I, I, I would have a hard time explaining the, the Harry's kind of ongoing efforts to manipulate and mess with Adri uh, long after the, the crime itself, you'd have to, uh, it's, it's, it's towards the end of the book and it, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate, but he was still 
not able, I think, to make that kind of uh, clear, you know, bearing his soul, bearing his conscience, you know, asking for forgiveness. That just wasn't really Harry's way. He made a kind of effort, but it was this muddled, confusing thing that I'm sure Adri, we don't know a lot about Adri. You know, Adri didn't leave behind letters or a diary or anything like that. So it's hard to, or interviews and stuff. So it's hard to really know what Adri thought. I think Adri probably just eventually realized, um, you know, my brother is, has suffers from a kind of mental illness and he's beyond redemption. I think everybody eventually came to that conclusion about Harry because like his, it was a, I mean, for Harry, it was a big deal that he even approached the idea of trying to reconcile with his brother, even if he didn't really successfully do it for Harry to even think about it or to acknowledge that maybe he should for Harry was kind of a big deal for the rest of us. We would look at what he did and think, Oh my God, this guy's just beyond, uh, like I said, kind of beyond redemption. And that's hard for me as a writer. I, I've written about a lot of different kinds of people. I never really written a book about murder before, but I've written a lot of things about law and, you know, people commit crimes and do bad stuff. They kind of get caught up in circumstances beyond their control. And I, you know, I, I'm someone who I'd like to know the full story about someone. I'm not, I don't believe that, oh, you know, people are just born evil and there's nothing that we can do. Like, you know, I, I, we know that people are, are to a certain extent products of their environment, but boy, with Harry, it's, it's hard not to think that he was just um, kind of the classic bad seed uh, up until the very end. Right. There have long been rumors of a recording of Hayward confessing to the murder of Catherine King, right? What do you think about that? There is a recording out there and whether it's actually Harry or not, we don't know. They, um, recording, re- recording equipment was seen being brought into the, into the, into the Hennepin County jail. And, and there is a recording of someone, um, you know, it, it claims to be, you could buy this. It was, it was before the days of, um, 78s and LPs and stuff is this kind of wax cylinder type thing. And and there is a recording of someone who claims to be Harry. I, I, there's another thing that I kind of go back and forth on whether I I think it's Harry or I think it's just an actor. It's, it's, these things were often sold uh, in other cases, other sort of notorious people. And uh, we know in other cases that, you know, voice actors were kind of hired to read their words. And when you listen to it, it sounds, it, it sounds a little affected um, in a way, but I mean, it was, they, they, it was independently reported that this recording program was brought into the jail. So I, part of me thinks, well, why, if they were, if they just had a voice actor, why would they have gone through all of that trouble? Um, but, and we, uh, and we, we don't have any other recordings to compare it against. So like the case of Harry's other murders, it's sort of, you could, it could kind of go, it could kind of go either way. It's interesting. It's really fun to listen to. And it's, even if it's not Harry, um, you know, it was recorded contemporaneously and it, it is a, um, 
it's an interesting thing to listen to in its own right. What's the nature of it? It's yeah, it's not it's not anything like overly specific. He doesn't, you know, detail you know his how he plotted with Klaus Blix to kill Kitty King, but it's just this sort of uh, vaguely menacing, over dramatic, uh, self aggrandizing. Uh, thing where he discusses his um, his fate more or less, I say. So the day of his execution, um, how did he handle it? Uh, did 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 everything go the way it was expected to go? Well, he <laughs> intended to go from whose perspective? Uh, the, you know, <laughs> uh, from the perspective of the uh, county. The, the state. Yeah, I mean, he was eventually successfully hanged. And this was, boy, I forget the exact timing of when uh, public execution, John Bessler has written a great book about um, mob violence and executions in Minnesota. And um, public executions had been stopped before this, but there's still immense interest. So people will, in the manner today when someone is executed, you know, people, even if they can't get into the execution chamber, you know, they'll gather outside the prison. And in morbid curiosity. And so that, that happened, you know, I think he handled it, boy, how does, what is the right way to handle one's execution? That's a, that's an interesting question. I, I think he probably handled it as well as, as one might have. He had some cavalier words, um, when he finally, uh, reached, when he finally was put up on the scaffold, uh, for the hanging itself. Um, the hanging itself didn't go, um, ideally the, um, your, the neck snaps, the weight of the body. Uh, if, if they do it right, the neck just snaps. Um, unfortunately, Harry's neck did not snap and, and what he was more or less strangled by the, by the noose, which, so it was a, a, uh, botched execution in that sense, but um, did end in, in Harry being killed. So the, the famed 19th century detective, Alan Pinkerton, called Hayward one of the greatest criminals the world has ever seen. Do you agree with that? Hmm. Well, as a criminal... Not exactly, because he was—he just did some silly stuff that wound up getting him caught. But I think he's a great figure. I think he's has a, a one of the maybe I, I would say it is one of the great criminal personas of the nineteenth century. You know, he was is such a compelling figure and such a dynamic figure, and and had this kind of magnetism. Uh, both living and even after he had passed away, you know, there were these sorts of rumors about his, his uh, people communicating with the spirit and, you know, uh, all sorts of things. And, and uh, people still, you know, still talk about him. So I think he was a great criminal figure. He was a unique criminal figure, I think in some ways, because he, he had these, I don't know, he sort of brought together a lot of uh, interesting things. And that's, to go back to the beginning, it's sort of why I was interested in this story. It's not really a, in some ways it's a pretty cut and dry 
murder. It's not a mystery per se, but I think the real mystery is in kind of getting into um, Harry's head, which they did, (laughs) which doctors literally did. This is a time when uh, people believe that, you know, the measurement of the skull and the brain were indicative of uh, personality traits. So Harry's brain was taken out and examined. And of course it was, you know, uh, uh, somewhat not surprisingly, the people who examined this brain said, oh, well, this is, this is the brain of it shows the, uh, the, the classic indicators of, you know, uh, criminal behavior. There's a lot of stuff that we um, since have realized is pseudoscience, but Again, another reason why this is such a good story is because it just lets you get into a lot of uh, sort of great intersection of interesting uh, kind of social and cultural forces in the Gilded Age, and that's why I really liked doing the book. It's hard to write about to say that writing about a murder is fun because it, you know, it's not. I, I, you have to remind yourself that a young woman lost her life, and that's not entertainment. Uh, necessarily, but there are some things about the story that are really entertaining, and that's why I uh, that's why I did the book, and that's why I like the story. Right. There have been, on occasion, over the last few decades, efforts to memorialize Kitty Ging in Minneapolis, in one fashion or another. Yeah. So there's a, um, I believe it's called the Kitty or Catherine Ging. Memorial Green uh, out near the site of the murder. It's kind of by a soccer field, which I think is kind of nice that that something was done to remember the the victim. She just wasn't a kind of afterthought in all of this. And she was a great, a very, you know, a very compelling figure in her own right. And I wish there were, it's one of the, I don't know, the kind of vagaries of history that you kind of have to write about the stuff that you can find, the stuff that exists. And she didn't really leave behind letters, diaries, interviews, things like that, that we we really could know. So if I had had more material relating to Kitty, I absolutely would have written a lot more about her because I thought she was just a a really interesting person. But unfortunately, we don't... uh, we know about her as as this victim, and I regret that she in the book and in the in our memories she's a, not a really a three dimensional fully realized figure. But I do think um, you know remembering her and and realizing that there was um, the tragedy to the story. It's again, it's not, and I know that true crime now is you know it's big entertainment there's podcasts and and docuseries and all these books and all this stuff and i believe me i i read um i think the first book that ever really made me want to be a writer was uh in true blood by truma capote which i read i don't know i was like a freshman in high school or something and i read that book and i read uh the Executioner Song by Norman Mailer, and you know, the, so it's the, the crime is this is, is this industry, and I I I am part of that industry, I guess, by having done this book. But um, it it does it, it it's worth remembering that there were people 
who suffered, the people at the center of these stories suffer and their families suffered as well. So I was really happy to see that the kitty was remembered that way. Yeah, that, that reminds me. Uh, there was one really interesting moment you, you document in your book. Um, kitty had family from New York who came to Minneapolis um, after her, her death, including a twin sister named Julia, uh, whom the police decided to parade in front of Hayward. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, and the idea being that the uh, seeing the, uh, I don't know, the, the, he would perceive it as being sort of an apparition of Kitty or a, a reincarnation or whatever, and that that would startle him uh, into making some sort of confession, which did not work. There were a lot of things that they they tried in the course of the investigation that were silly, and that was um, that was one of them. So yeah, her her twin sister was kind of brought in briefly. And Kitty is, is buried near her hometown, right? Right in New York. So she's not buried in the cities. She's she's buried elsewhere. So what happened to Hayward's body after it was uh, uh, donated to science? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Harry is... is uh, there was some, I don't know, uh, reluctance to... Uh, to cremate Harry's body, um, he the people didn't want to do it. They didn't want to have to. Um, so he had to sort of be shipped elsewhere and cremated. Uh, and then he is interred in the cities as well. And again, that was, um, th there've been all sorts of rumors and legends about, you know, Harry's body and, and he wasn't actually cremated. He's been, uh, I forget the details of this one story. It's like the, uh, I don't know. It's the, the Masons or somebody, uh, uh, reanimated Harry at some point. It's just all sorts of like great far-fetched tales that kind of speak to the, um, the mythological status of Harry that even after he had died, uh, you know, his story and his legend kind of lived on. Did Harry threaten to haunt Adri after his execution? Yeah. So, yeah. And this was, you know, Harry being Harry. Um, I think he, um, was <laughs> again, couldn't. And at this point was, you know, facing his coming to terms with his own mortality. And so he issued uh, threats to his brother, which again, a bigger man might have said, Adri, as I, you know, I'm, I'm facing my own demise. I, I want to make a clean slate and ask for forgiveness. And uh, that wasn't Harry's way. Harry's way was to say, basically, I will come back in another form. <laughs> <laughs> to menace you in some ways. And um, again, speaks to speaks to Harry and, and Harry's character. Well, well, this has been great. Um, so I know your book is available in Minnesota bookstores, online as well. Yeah, through uh, University of Minnesota Press, um, who are fantastic people and did a great job with the book. And so wherever... Um, wherever you buy books. And I, um, 
encourage people to support their local booksellers. This is a time when uh, everybody is up against it. Uh, and local booksellers have been up against it for a long time. So um, I would I would encourage people to get the book that way as well. Well, thank thanks so much for doing this with me. Great. It's always my pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Sean Francis Peters. His book is called The Infamous Harry Hayward, A True Account of Murder and Mesmerism in Gilded Age Minneapolis. Thank you for joining me here at Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time. <laughs>